If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The guest on today's podcast is the historian and historical consultant, Professor Ryan Lavelle. Ryan's written a new book about rebellion and revolt in early medieval England and France. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, caught up with him to find out more. Today, I am joined by Ryan Lavelle, who is Professor of Early Medieval History at the University of Winchester and a regular contributor to BBC History magazine and to our lecture programme. And he's been on this podcast before. So uh, so a familiar voice to some of you. Uh, His latest book is Places of Contested Power, Conflict and Rebellion in England and France, 830 to 1150 AD, published just now in August by Boydell. So uh, so available to read. Um, and we're going to have a chat about that and some of the themes that he's looking at in that. So Ryan, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to speak to you, Dave. Good, good stuff. Um, so uh, firstly, I guess uh, we should, uh, I should give you an opportunity to just try and explain broadly what you're trying to do with this uh, piece of research. It's as, as the title suggests, it's about rebellions, rebellions against authority during this period, uh, and and particularly seen through the lens of place and and where things happen. So uh, you can obviously describe it much better than me. You wrote the book, but uh, so so what's what's the, what's the central thesis? What sort of got me thinking about this was the the description of. Uh, a a particular rebellion in uh, mid-11th century Normandy uh, by um, the uncle of William the Conqueror and the the castle in which this this rebellion took place, Arc la Bataille in in Normandy, was described as a a place of madness, a rampart of madness. And it, it sort of struck me that actually that Madness is is probably the wrong description, and and that's the, it's a a very clear set of reasons, or or, or to contemporaries at least, there must have been a, a a very clear set of reasons for for those 
kind of choices of, of decisions. So what I was trying to do was, was probe into into those that that sort of process of decision making and those those sorts of processes of, of actions uh, through the power of place. Okay, so and and I guess we should uh, just dip into the context a bit here. So as you've mentioned there, uh, the, the period sort of leads up to to the to the Norman conquest, I guess. And then is it a, is it a time of particular uh, revolt and, uh, and and rebellion? It seems to be yes. It's you know, I it, it's very much a, a kind of picture of the uh, the the sort of what we might call the the late early middle ages so to speak and uh, leading up to the this what's becoming known by historians as the central middle ages uh, as a as a period of um of conflict as a period of of contested power and uh, there are lots of examples and and while i was writing the book i was keeping a just a little black book of whenever i came across an example of uh, of of rebellion or, or contested power, uh, I was I was writing down the location and the context and the source, and it it, it got full pretty quickly. Uh, I I can't put a, a sort of number on it off the top of my head, but it's uh, you know there's a lot of things going on as as you might expect, and I think it's it's partly because these um, these political realms, these polities, were in a, a state of a flux at, at many times uh, during the, the period from the, the 9th to the 12th centuries and uh, sort of geographically, they're comparatively small quite often. The uh, the dukedoms or the kingdoms sometimes are, are comparatively small and uh, it because of the, the sort of tight-knit nature of uh, political links between members of ruling families because ruling families might uh, might have close associations with um you know their, their kin group and rely on their kin group to uh, to rule it's it's often possible for um for there to to be uh, contested power basically at, at this time and and these these kind of conflicts frequently come in and uh it's it's basically for for members of the political class it was this was the the sort of predominant means of um of basically making opposition known uh where whether where where power is contested basically but I, I suppose one question is is what exactly do we mean by rebellion? When was a rebellion not a rebellion and, and who was rebelling against who? I attempted to do a, a whole chapter on the, the idea of um, trying to categorise different types of rebellions and, and revolts and I'm, I'm still not satisfied with, with what I came up with but it was the best that I could do really because rebellion is a is a term which is used by... Um, the people who are rebelled against by uh, it's 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 often used in order to denigrate political opponents as as much as it is you know quite often very often in fact the the people who are contesting power are are not admitting to to being rebels and uh, quite often a rebellion is an unsuccessful seizure of power and frequently we don't actually see uh, the. You know, frequently somebody who who might have seized power becomes the the kind of legitimate authority themselves, and and so signs of references to rebellion, the classic 
case, I suppose, with a, an insurrection is the Carolingian royal family who ruled Western Europe for um, basically a couple of centuries. Uh, that you know, the, the sort of sense of them as as rebels, as um, as as insurgents, is, is effectively you know really played down. Um, so that's that's one of the things. So quite often, you know, we. We know rebellion when we see it, but it's it, it's quite difficult to uh, to categorise. But it, what I found myself doing increasingly was looking at considering it to be political opposition. And once I realised that I wasn't necessarily always able to to kind of get my fingers onto rebellion per se, then by looking at things in terms of opposition and political opposition and and uh, often violence uh, opposition whether the threat of violence or actual violence it became a bit easier to try to uh, to try to sort that out and so you've got this this whole sort of range of of different types of political opposition from opposition within the royal family from members of a royal family who might be somewhat discontented and uh, unhappy about the the lots and sort of chafing for for political power uh through to um members of members of the aristocracy who 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 might uh, sort of feel a particular grievance about a particular piece of land or or a um a, a particular castle for example or um and sometimes a, a kind of confederation of of those political opponents and uh, then in in some other examples uh, there are there are um, peasants revolts as well and, and those are not particularly frequent before about the 12th century but, uh, but you know they, they still happen as well so it's about a whole whole kind of spectrum of, uh, of political opposition that I was I was trying to uh, trying to look at okay Brilliant. Um, so let's uh, let's now just try and laser in on a, on a couple of examples um, and to, to get a sense of the way that you've attempted to understand them. So I'd like to talk about um, Godwin's revolt against Edward the Confessor in 1050-1052 and the Earl's revolt against King William in 1075. Um, so let's let's go to the first one to the to the 1050-52 crisis. Um, can you just um, can you just drop us into that story? Tell us what's going on, who Godwin was, why he was disaffected, and just a, a very brief um, uh, overview of, of how things played out. Yeah, so the 1050 to 1052 crisis is uh, it is an absolutely fascinating sort of crux point, if you like, at the the end of Anglo-Saxon England, and uh, it's a a point where you've got this very powerful earl in England uh, who was related to the the previous dynasty, the the, the dynasty of Canute, and he's uh, related to. Edward the Confessor as well, who was king uh, prior to 1066, as I'm sure most people are, uh, are aware of. And um, Godwin was the, um, the, the basically the, the father-in-law of, uh, of, of King Edward. The, the crisis has, has, has basically emerged through the, uh, the succession to the Archbishopric of, of Canterbury, where the Godwin and his, his family wanted their particular candidate to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. And um, Edward the Confessor had, had wanted a, a Norman uh, figure, uh, Robert of Jumiege, to, to become the, the Archbishop. And... Um, 
Edward's policy was effectively to have uh, to to use his um, connections with the the clergy and with uh, with abbots as effectively providing his his political links within the kingdom, having been a uh, an exile from the kingdom for um, for most of his his youth and uh, much of his adulthood, and so you've got this this sort of tension between this very well established um, Earlish dynasty, this this very well established magnate family, and um, and the king, and effectively the the, the kind of flashpoint it emerges as a result of uh, both the tensions from there and from the arrival of uh, Edward's uh, brother-in-law Eustace of Boulogne in Dover in in 1050 and uh, it, sorry in 1051 and this um this resulted in the uh, the the killing of uh some townspeople in, of Dover and, and some of the, uh, the the retinue of Eustace and, um, and this was probably the result of, of Eustace having come into Dover in a kind of quasi-entry ceremony in this, this kind of sense that he had some authority over this town which was part of Godwin's earldom and you've got this this kind of moments of, of political violence with, by the townspeople of, uh, of Dover against the, uh, the incoming, um, incoming French, the not-Normans, of, of course, uh, from, from Boulogne. And um, Edward orders that, uh, that Godwin punish the townspeople of Dover. And uh, there's a refusal, and this, this basically becomes a, a flashpoint, and Edward orders Godwin and his family to come to an assembly in Gloucestershire. And, and what I've found really interesting is that the assembly places were um, of politic, uh, uh, were of particular political importance because assemblies were uh, the, the, the kind of political center point of, of the uh, Anglo-Saxon kingdom of many early medieval kingdoms, in fact. And Godwin's refusing, but in turn, he's holding his own political assembly at another meeting point uh, just nearby. And this, this kind of way of holding assemblies, of holding rival assemblies, is part of the, the kind of language of, of rebellion and, and opposition. And there's a standoff, basically, and, and uh as a result, as, as a result of a refusal to come to another assembly in London, uh, Godwin was exiled from the kingdom, and different members of the the, the Elish uh, families of Godwin, his um, his sons Tossie and um, and, and uh, Harold, they they go off to to different places around the the, the sort of North Sea region. Harold to Ireland, uh, Tossie to Flanders, Godwin to, to Flanders as well, and, and and basically they raise fleets and and this is incredibly well coordinated campaign in 1052 of the the Godwin family, the Godwin affiliation, basically sort of. Coming back into the, the the coast of England and travelling across in these these fantastic ships that they must have had uh, at the time, there's enormous attention and enormous energy is 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 
spent on on building these these really high quality vessels and and these are this is basically a viking campaign uh by the the godwin family going to royal estates and uh sacking royal estates and and um getting supporters across the south coast of england and then they 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 meet and if you put if you piece together the different accounts in the anglo-saxon chronicle the different contemporary manuscripts of the anglo-saxon chronicle you can basically piece together the movements of this fleet across the south coast and the um the upshot is that uh, that edward the confessor is, is is basically you know needing to save face in this situation because there are also other earls in in england who who support him and whose whose position is served by uh serving edward and and they they come together um and there is a there's a kind of military naval um armies and, and 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 naval forces standing off against each other on the river thames uh, in in 1052 and this this kind of fleet action which almost results in this exceptionally bloody battle and then wiser heads prevail basically and it i mean it kind of strikes me as a as a bit of a negotiate negotiationary tactic um on the part of the the godwins in order to to basically return to the kingdom in a in a sort of greater state than they had had previously been in and using force and the threat of force to to kind of return themselves to this this status quo ante that they that they'd been at but you know, ratcheted up a, a bit more with a, a, a sort of greater sense of um, of dominance over the kingdom. So Edward, in, in trying to save face, has to give ground effectively. Um, but, but I suppose crucially, that s- civil war, you know, what, what could be outright civil war was, was never quite uh, reached in, in 1052. Okay, so um, so that's uh, that's a really interesting summation of the events there. I suppose, and you've mentioned places quite a few times there, from Dover to these assembly places in Gloucestershire. Um, how imp- how important were the places involved, and how was your um, your your methodology of looking at the, at, at this event through places uh, helped you to understand it? So looking at this this particular event, I uh, was looking at the, the the landscape of the the hundred assembly points, uh, a place called Langtree in Gloucestershire, and uh, sort of mapping it out and, and looking at it in terms of uh, the the land holdings in the area and the the kind of influence of the the Godwin family in that region, and and thinking about the history as well of of that region. So thinking about the the place in in terms of its of of its regional importance, it's close to Sherston, which was the the site of a, a battle um, less than fifty years earlier, actually much less than fifty years earlier within within their lifetime. In fact, uh, a battle which had, had been fought between Edmund Ironside and and Canute, and it's um, it's got this this kind of um, 
sort of later history associated with it as this being the point when Earl Godwin took service with Canute and and whether that's whether that's necessarily true or not some something is important about the um the significance of of that landscape of that that area uh with the uh, the Godwin family and there's a there's a kind of history as as well associated with the um with that earlier generation because there had been a a point when um somebody had or, or or two of the um the important thanes associated with the the royal family had been summoned to an assembly in oxford during the the lifetime of ethelred the unready uh, edward the confessor's father they'd been summoned to an assembly and murdered and the widow of one of those thanes who was murdered was brought to malmesbury which is very close to Sherston, is very close to this this kind of landscape. So these these are places which have meaning to the Godwin family. Godwin has links with this um, this previous generation as well, and and so it has a has a kind of history. So so in a sense, what it's what it's about is is looking at the you know the the sort of deep history, if you like, of of these sites, the the things that have meaning and significance to um uh, to those places and doing a certain amount of mapping as well and 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 trying to trying to identify the locations identifying the locations where um that were the 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 kind of military attacks the the naval attacks took place those sorts of um those sorts of things are are, are part of the the methodology really Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But to take to take Wealthy off uh, right down the high street and right up the hill would have been raising clamour in itself. It was a very public act and it's a, there's a kind of theatricality behind execution. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. 
Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. So this idea of places with meaning is, is fascinating, isn't it? Because you're obviously you're you're coming at it from from the uh, uh, from from uh, with, with the benefit of hindsight as a historian, you're looking back and seeing that uh, that the places were connected. But how far were the people then aware? I mean, you know, was was Godwin and Co aware of the significance of these places and and uh, and uh, and why they might have uh, been important, why they might have been chosen for for these sorts of events? Yes, I suppose we could say that from a, a, a kind of point of hindsight, we, you know, what we do as historians is, is sort of look back on this um, this sort of time tunnel, and then, you know, and looking at this, all these all these pieces sort of clipped together in a way that may not have been the case for contemporaries. But I think we have to work on the the assumption that with these these kind of links within a sort of generational memory, I think these these links do have have some meaning that uh, that that they're aware of the the histories that uh, places like Hundredal assembly points are, are places where history is told. The, these are places where um, within the landscape they have the, the the meaning. So so Lang Tree Hundred has this this meaning of this this tree, the the long tree uh, associated with it. We don't know what that that history is, that particular point of the history, but the the place names and the um, the the stories are are what. Um, what could be this this kind of um, this oral history that that's associated with these um, these places? This sort of um, foggily remembered past, in a in a way, um, associated with the um, the um, with the landscape and um, people tell stories, and that that's part of it. Is that the the sort of storytelling and the, um, the the sort of memories associated with the storytelling get you know, get get passed on, and and these these places develop uh, an importance. So, you know, what what is simply a dot on the map to us is is something with with real meaning. That the the, the kind of processes of moving to that site of of you know of, of trudging across the landscape or, or traveling on horseback to that site has a has a meaning in itself. Has a has a has a kind of um, meaning of of storytelling of generational meaning of, of of making these these connections so you know godwin is is remembering this this past associated with with his family and uh with the uh with the english kingdom only a, a generation or so before but beyond that it has this this sort of longer term meaning as well hmm. Yeah, I mean that's I guess that's a, the nub of it, and part of why your approach is very interesting to try and get a sense of of, of the meanings that these places would have had. Should we um should we, should we trot on to to the other uh, rebellion that I wanted to talk about, um, which was uh, the uh, the ten seventy five seventy six one, uh, the Earl's Revolt against uh, King William. So this moves us on beyond the Norman Conquest uh, to to the period when. Uh, the Normans are in power, and uh, and the English, the Anglo-Saxons are uh, are potentially looking to uh, to challenge that. So, so again, give us a little sense of uh, of what's going on in that particular moment. So, it, yes, in in ten seventy five, there's uh, you know what what could be called the 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 final English revolt against uh, William the Conqueror, uh, who's you know 
pretty well established in in England by this stage. There'd been a, a series of of revolts uh, up until um, 1071, and uh, effectively there'd been a, a relative period, well, a relative period of calm anyway. Um, but uh, this, I suppose the difference with the Earl's Revolt is that only one of the main protagonists was English. The other two um, were Norman and, uh, and Breton. Uh, so you've got Ralph de Gale, who was a, a Breton, but was the Earl in East Anglia. And uh, you've uh, got uh, Roger de Breteuil, who was a, a lord in, in Normandy, as well as uh, being the... Uh, the Earl in, in Herefordshire. And then the, the third figure is Waltheof, who was uh, a, a member of the, well, effectively a member of the Northumbrian aristocracy, actually, as, as you know, I suppose we could call him a member of the English aristocracy, but he, he had Northumbrian links. His uh, father was Earl Seward, who was um, one of Canute's men, or who had been one of Canute's men in the north uh, bef- before being, um, uh, kind of being Earl in Northumbria during um, Edward the Confessor's reign as well. And um, Waltheof hadn't actually been the Earl of Northumbria because um, he'd been passed over for um, uh, Tostig, who uh, we, who I'd mentioned earlier, actually, one of the, the, the Godwin clan. And um, he, he'd been too young at the, the time of succession to the, uh, the Northumbrian earldom in the 1050s. Uh, but he had links with the, the English royal family. He had it links with the, the pre-conquest English royal family. And I think this is the dynamic, really, is that these, these earls were um, members of... Uh, members of the aristocracy who were sons of a previous generation. So Waltheof is is the son of a very successful Northumbrian earl. And uh, Roger was the the son of William Fitzosburn. And uh, William Fitzosburn had had basically been William the Conqueror's right-hand man and had this enormous influence, uh, which kind of stretched across from uh, Western England across into the the Welsh marches. And... uh, it's similarly the case for for Ralph de Gale, and uh, this I mean this this has been recognised by by historians for um, for some years that 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 kind of sense of um, dissatisfaction. But I think that that sort of theme of dissatisfaction is important in in trying to trying to kind of recognise the um, the kind of the dynamics in in ten seventy five and. There, there was a plot. Uh, there was, there was a plot at in in England. The nature of which gets played up to the point of a view of of saying, well, it was a plot to replace William as king to, you know, to take over the kingdom. But uh, in these situations. It's not always the case. This isn't uh, necessarily the case with with these rebellions. Rebels aren't aren't really revolutionaries. That they they have um, they often have aims to to draw attention to their their state of dissatisfaction uh, rather than necessarily trying to trying to overthrow the established order. But it's seen as treason, and the plot becomes 
revealed at a, a wedding feast in Exning in, in Cambridgeshire uh, in 1075, which was a, a wedding for um, uh, Ralph de Gell to marry the sister of, of Roger. And it was a it was a marriage that uh, William wouldn't give his approval for. And uh, this is a dynamic in early medieval politics, the the, uh, the refusal by a king to give assent to a, a marriage for, for political reasons. And uh, so I think there is this this kind of sense of the wedding itself being a an act of defiance, or at least that's the way I read it, um, because that, that wedding, that that marriage, effectively gave a a, a kind of sense of of coalition of political um, grounding to um, uh, to the certainly to to um, Ralph and to William, and it it becomes on you know it becomes unstuck and uh, that the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle portrays this in a in a sort of sense of tragedy because Waltheof is um um Waltheof was was married to the niece of William the Conqueror and she was a figure who um the according to the, the the kind of way it's it's told she's the figure who 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 sort of you know forces Waltheof to um to give it up, basically, to 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 lose his his position, and um, uh, it's, you know, it's this sort of sense of betrayal, and and so in in later retellings, this this then becomes told as um, uh, from a misogynistic point of view as the the wife's betrayal of um, of the the earl, and um, Waltheoff had well, it it. It seems that Waltheoff may have got cold feet uh, from this and uh, and and gone to uh, Lanfranc, the archbishop, the then archbishop of, of Canterbury, to reveal the plot. William at this time, King William was was not in England at, at this point, and there is this this kind of sense of the rebellion being um, uh, against agents of the king rather than against the the king himself. So whether Waltheoff is is kind of actively involved in the rebellion once things actually kick off to a, a point of view of uh of violence because uh uh roger was uh in, involved in in what were evidently some skirmishes in in the west country and um ralph was involved in in some skirmishes well what what Basically, become a became known as a, a battle, uh, at least in in terms of the the way it's recorded by a twelfth century chronicler, Ordric Vitalis, a, a battle at a place called Fayaduna, uh, which was a, a place a little place called Forden in Cambridgeshire. Uh, it, it it comes to a you know it comes to a head. Were the agents of the king uh, the the you know the 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 people who are. Um, holding the authority on on behalf of the king come into direct conflict with the um uh with the rebels and and it it becomes a, a point with with bloodshed so place has another important element in this story which is not far from from where i am on uh in in winchester so it's a, a uh, St. Giles's Hill, which overlooks the city of Winchester. And this was where Waltheoff was executed in May 
1076. And Orderic Vitalis sort of says that, uh, that, that, that King William wasn't the, the person who ordered this to happen, that this was a result of the, uh, the kind of jealousies of the, uh, the Norman aristocracy. Um, but this is, this is basically a, a royal order of execution. And uh, the, this is something which was done in order to make a point, to make very deliberately make a political point. And executions of rebels are comparatively uncommon uh, in the, the, the period that I, I looked at. It does happen. Um, uh, it, it happens in, in Francia, for example, and, um, but quite often that royal forgiveness or, or um, um, some, some form of agreement uh, takes place, as we see with, uh, with Godwin and uh, Edward the Confessor. But maybe that was what uh, Waltheof was, was hoping for. But he was in prison for, for quite some time. But I think there's a, a very legalistic dimension to this, that William has to be doing the right thing, that he has to be agreeing the right thing, that, he, that it has to be um, properly done. But at the end of the day, this was a royal demonstration of power. The king was demonstrating his power in doing this. And uh, it's, I think it's really interesting if you, if you look at from St. Giles's Hill, you can see the, the royal castle of Winchester or what would have been the royal castle of, of Winchester. There's a very clear view between the two sites. And the account of Orderic's, uh, the account of by Orderic of Waltheof's execution is that uh, Waltheof was taken at the crack of dawn, uh, taken from uh, prison up to St. Giles's Hill, uh, and that this was done whilst the people slept, uh, so as not to raise clamour, but to take to take wealthy off uh, right down the high street and right up the hill would have been raising clamour in itself. It was a very public act, and it's a, there's a kind of theatricality behind execution, uh, and and of course this is a you know royal executions is a is a topic. It's a fascinating topic in itself, but I think this is one of these cases where because of the connection with the rebellion, the the landscape and the the, the sort of sense of uh, authority that's going on, this reassertion of authority that's going on here is is particularly important and it was a, a particularly important moment for uh, for William. So from what you're saying it sounds like people here were, were very deliberately using landscape or at least thinking about place as very much part of their actions. Is that is that a fair assessment of, of what you're identifying here? Oh, absolutely, yes. So uh, people people using landscape has been a big part of my my work for um, the last uh, twenty years or so. Actually, um, I it wasn't something which I I totally appreciated once. You know, when I originally started looking at it, but I I, I began my um, my postgraduate career by looking at uh, at royal estates in in Wessex, and then looking at at warfare and the, the sort of the landscape dimension of warfare very much came in. 
in and then these these sort of places of contested power are not always out and out battles but they're they're places where effectively a battle might take place but they're, they're places where people are, are kind of acting out this political theater and uh, they the choice of the site and the the landscape around them and the, the places that they're looking at as well and uh, these these all play an important role in the uh, the, the kind of political theater uh, theater of of the time. So just um, sort of wrapping up with a few more general themes about um, about rebellion. Um, you've talked a lot about uh, about how how it transpired and what sort of people were involved, but. How generally was rebellion viewed in this period? Was it was it seen as a, a negative thing? Was it like really frowned upon to take action against an established ruler? So, yeah, I mean there there are there are cases where there is this this sort of sense of a of a ruler who um, has some some sense of illegitimacy in in terms of their actions, but actions are often against the agents of the king rather than the 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 king himself um but uh, rebellion is um it's not you know it's not not always a a bad thing or you know it's it's not always perceived as a bad thing in 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 this period um but you know in in, in some cases it 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 really depends on the the outcome of the the situation. It depends on the the negotiation. It depends on a, a whole number of uh, of of different factors. Okay, so finally, uh, I suppose you've talked about this a bit before, actually, about how rebels were treated, about how the difference between Walter's treatment and and Godwin's treatment, uh, uh, and you know, one of them uh, ending much worse than the other. So, so how what was the general reaction to rebels? Did it entirely depend on circumstances? You get some of them being uh, executed or mutilated, whereas others are sort of forgiven and uh, and seem to do quite well out of uh, out of their revolt. Yes, yeah, it absolutely depends on the uh, the circumstances and, uh, in a sense, the political standing of the um, the the figure, the the ruler who is being rebelled against, and uh, in effect, yes, yeah, you get there's uh, mutilation. Some of the um, rebels of of ten seventy five were were mutilated, were maimed. Not the um, well, uh, Roger. Um, L. Roger and uh, L. Ralph were um, well imprisoned and uh, in, and exiled in 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 those cases, and um, Roger lost land. So you get loss of land as a result of rebe- rebellion, and and that does seem to be a uh, a response. But uh, in other cases, yes, it's it's the the kind of case of some some kind of reconciliation rebels were killed in battle as well the the nephew of alfred the great ethelwald was was killed in a battle in um uh, 90, uh, um as a as a result of the, the the kind of fallout which which probably saved a a a great deal of um of uh sort of political concerns if you like uh, uh, you know it, it, it probably got uh, Alfred's son Edward the Elder out of somewhat of a hole uh, as to what he 
would have had to have done had he had he captured his his cousin. Um, so there's a whole load of responses. You know, the number of different responses. There isn't a kind of stock response in in this situation. But as I say, it kind of depends on the uh, the outcome, and it depends on whether a uh, a kind of act of political re- opposition results in um, agreement or whether it results in the the, the rebel you know, getting away or, or, or being captured. So um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it's very much part of the whole history of this, this period between the 9th and the, the 12th centuries. Okay. So finally, Ryan, um, you're a man who studied all this in great depth, as you've, as you've outlined here. Um, do you, I'm wondering, so as you're traveling around the country, when you're, you know, maybe when you're driving somewhere and you're, and you're, you're, you're moving through the country, do you are, are you able to put yourself back into the into the sort of mindset of these people from the 9th through to the 11th 12th centuries are you when you if you go to Beverston near Tetbury in Gloucestershire do you do you sort of think about oh this is this is an assembly site here do you are you are you aware and mindful of all that uh, dear, I, I I wish that I could um, you know be able to get fully in the mindset of of these people? Um, although you know to to get fully in the mindset is is probably to become a, a completely different person altogether, isn't it? Um, but that that sort of sense of of trying to try to just get some sense, you know, just that that sort of inkling of of what uh, what might be felt, of what might be experienced, and uh, what might be thought as well, is is something that I. I try to do it. It's something that I've been trying to do for for years. Um, I'm not sure I'm any closer now than than I ever was, but uh, it's it's the kind of process of investigation of thinking, and uh, you know, sometimes on a on a bright summer's day or even a very dull day, where you know, where you you can kind of sometimes feel it, and it's it's, it's as much the the work of imagination as, as much as anything else. And uh, that, that sort of historical imagining is, is an important part of the, uh, the historical process because, you know, it, it's by putting these, these different uh, sets of thoughts and ideas together that we, you know, we really advance historical knowledge. Professor Ryan Lavelle from uh, the University of Winchester. Thank you very much for that. Your book, Places of Contested Power, Conflict and Rebellion in England and France, 8.30 to 11.50, is available now. Thank you very much, Dave. It's a pleasure to speak to you. And thanks for, the, thanks for those questions. That was Ryan Lavelle. His book on this subject, Places of Contested Power, is available now, published by Boyd Allen Brewer. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Wednesday when Sarah Kovner will be speaking about Japanese prisoner of war camps. <laughs>